welcome to Fierce Compassion, the podcast that explores the power of compassion in creating an anti-racist society. I'm Roxy Manning, and I'm the author of How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations. And I'm Sarah Payton, co-author with Roxy of the companion book, The Anti-Racist Heart. In our books, we talk about the importance of self-compassion and compassion in building a movement to combat racism. As we wrote, we realized how much we were inspired by other people who have walked this path in so many different ways with their self-expression and bringing their art to this complex question. We wanted to share some of the inspirations we found along the way with you, in part because we care about the work of these people so much, and in part to lift up each listener's own activism and creativity so that everyone will feel comfortable and inspired to bring their own activism and creativity together. In our podcast series, you'll discover activism related in film, writing, teaching, painting, designing and curating art shows, and even composing and performing music. For each person that we interview, we ask them about their relationship with compassion and self-compassion. What does it mean to them? How does it influence their work? And so let's take a moment to answer these questions ourselves. Sarah, what's your definition of self-compassion? The way that I see self-compassion, it's very, it's very powerful. Uh, Many people get this idea that self-compassion is wishy-washy and weak and that why are we wasting time with our own self-compassion when the world needs to be changed? And I see compassion as a powerful way to accompany ourselves and to bring even maybe some lightness and some, um, some warmth to this very intense and important work of anti-racism. So for me, what self-compassion is, it's an ongoing self-accompaniment where I'm always acknowledging the complexity of my own experience and kind of at the same time keeping my eye on the ball. Mm -hmm. I like this. And, you know, as I hear that definition of self-compassion, it connects a little bit to how I'm holding self-compassion. And I think about it as my capacity to leverage care, Mm -hmm. to basically whatever I'm going through, to be able to hold myself and what's important to me with as much care, as much value as I'm able to extend towards others. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious because I know I've struggled to access self-compassion. Have you always been able to access it? Well, my experience is uh, that I, I, I lived like the first 45 years of my life absolutely without it. <laughs> mm. so, so it's been, the, I'm 60 now, it's been the focus of the last 15 years because all of a sudden a door opened mm-hmm. that was like a door to possibility. And it opened with a one breath meditation of self-warmth. And I was like, And I also had somebody explain to me that a trauma-ridden brain, of course, isn't going to be able to do self-compassion. And of course, I wasn't going to be able to do mindfulness 
meditation easily. Mm. Of course, when I opened myself up to the possibility of self-compassion, instead it would be like Edward Scissorhands cutting myself apart. So mm. no, I have not always been able to access it, but but learning about neuroscience and learning about the after effects of trauma has just changed my life extraordinarily. How about you, Roxy? Have you always been able to access this combination of warmth for mm. others and warmth for yourself? You know, it's interesting because I've always been able to access warmth for other people, but not for myself. And I was talking with someone today, and one of the things that was really clear to me is that being able to access warmth for other people can be a survival mechanism if you're a person of the global majority, right? I need to like help you feel safe around me so that I know that I belonged. So I got really skilled at doing that, but I wasn't able to hold that same compassion to myself. In fact, every time I did something that I thought might endanger my belonging, I wasn't able to think, well, my dear sweet Roxy, why are you doing this, right? What are the needs you're trying to meet? Instead, I would beat myself up. I would be so harsh because it almost felt like existential. If I didn't get it right, I could be in trouble. I could be in danger. And so I had internalized a lot of society's messages that the way to create behavior change was through judgment and shaming, not through self-compassion. So I also <laughs> took, I'd say, more than two-thirds of my life learning that this was, there was a different path. And how, what, what, what tempted you? What, what awakened you? How did you start to think, oh, there might be something different? You know, honestly, it was having children. <laughs> oh. Because it was so clear to me that I did not want my children to walk this path that I was on that I would never speak to my children with the same almost brutality that I spoke to myself. But even though I would never do that to them, I wasn't modeling something different. I wasn't showing them how to hold compassion and kindness towards themselves. And so one of my friends started asking me, hey, Roxy, would you say that to your child? You know, Or what would you say to your daughter if they had done this? And when I started just asking myself that question, whatever it was that I did, what would I say to my child? That is what helped me to shift these patterns that I was so locked in. Oh, that's beautiful. And Sarah, like you've already mentioned the neuroscience piece, and you're a neuroscience educator. So what are some of the common struggles that you see other folks experiencing as they attempt to be more compassionate to themselves and others? I really see this issue of trauma and uh, and also, I mean, it's so beautiful that you just spoke about, you know, the effect of parenting. Like, even if our parents don't speak to us, speak to us in cruel or harsh ways, but if they're speaking to themselves in cruel or harsh ways, then we internalize that. So it's not just first generation trauma; it's second, third, fourth, fifth generation trauma mm -hmm. that's a part of what comes into play when we attempt to be more compassionate to ourselves. And just as you also mentioned, people often have a much easier time having compassion for others than they have having compassion for themselves. It's a complicated task for the brain. It's almost like we have to learn that we are two, that we are two beings in one, that, we, that one part of our brain has this capacity to turn toward ourselves 
and to catch the emotional part of the brain that's experiencing distress or shame or overwhelm or terror. So there's, there's a lot of room for people to learn and practice uh, self-compassion. You know, you talk about this like first, second, third, fourth generation trauma. And I know in, in the anti-racist heart, you talk about unconscious contracts, which is in some ways could be one of the responses we, we um, have to trauma. Could you share a little bit more about what are unconscious contracts? Yes, absolutely. Unconscious contracts are agreements, they're behavioral agreements that we make with ourselves that will help us to survive. And it doesn't matter who we are. It's just a natural part of being human. It's a survival mechanism that we all use to manage a world where we are sometimes way more alone than any little social being human is supposed to be. Our bodies are made for social connection with each other. Like if I'm sitting next to somebody else and I can feel their body heat, I have special neurons that only are dedicated to feeling other people's body heat. When I feel other people's body heat, it actually changes the way that my body is processing thermal regulation. I, I, I change entirely whether my hands are cold or warm, whether I'm conserving my energy and keeping my blood from flowing to my extremities, or if I'm just, you know, relaxed and I know, oh, there's a lot of resource here. But a lot of us grow up with folks and people who are not necessarily very good at giving us a sense of safety because of these impacts of multi-generational trauma. And so then we don't have a sense of safety with others. We feel other people's body heat. And instead of relaxing, we're like, oh my goodness, I have to get the heck out of here. Now that would be an unconscious contract. Like I will not let people close to be safe. Or you could have an unconscious contract like, I will always get it right so that I'm not humiliated. And then if you have that kind of contract, I will always get it right so that I won't be humiliated. Then, And then all of a sudden you're trying to, to learn about anti-racism and you're trying to take good steps towards making the world a different place, a better place, and you don't get it right then you've broken your own internal agreement. And then when you break your own internal agreement, there's terrible terror or terrible shame that comes crashing in. And you and I in the past, Roxy, have talked a little bit about also unconscious contracts that can be in play for folks who are in the global majority and who might have a lot of contracts about how it's okay to behave in order to survive. And those are really important to acknowledge and to hold with compassion. And in the places where they are outmoded and no longer supporting us, to begin to release them so that we can learn the skills that you're offering us in how to have anti-racist conversations. I think it's so important for folks to realize that you know, and I hear people say this all the time. It's like, well, we have our intentions. We have these ideas about how we should be in the world. And what really matters is your actions. And I think that's 100% true, right? But I also want to hold compassion, our magic word, 
for the way that these unconscious contracts can block us from really behaving in ways that align with our intentions, no matter how hard we try. And that part of our work is how do we dissolve these unconscious contracts so that we could better align our actions and our intentions. Yeah, because if we let go of any contracts that we have to believe that we're always supposed to be right, then if our friend says to us, hey, what you just said just now, that was not cool. That did not work for me. That does not work for anti-racism. That is unconscious white supremacy. Instead of collapsing in horror and shame, if you've released these contracts, you can go, oh my God, you're right. Let me change that. Let me remember that. Let me learn this. This is good. Thank you for this feedback. Mm -hmm. I'm really grateful. Which is an entirely different response, which only becomes possible once we begin to release these Yes. Questions. Well, thank you for giving us that, like, preview into a topic that you go into quite a lot of detail in the anti-racist heart. And for those who are wanting to do more work on this, there are lots of exercises and um, explorations that you can do to really find and dissolve your own unconscious contracts in that book. And you work, Roxy, with this material all the time in organizations and groups that are addressing equity challenges. What is some of the pushback that you receive when you bring this lens to the work? You know, a big, big foundation of my work in the DEI field is bringing in this concept of self-compassion, compassion, and the ultimate goal of creating beloved community. And I remember one of like a really painful piece of feedback that I received when I was writing this book was, why should we ask people of the global majority to be compassionate to white folks who are not being compassionate to us, who are trying to harm us, right? That's like a pretty major piece of, of feedback. And, you know, this is, a, this is a topic that I think is not always fully understood. I like to differentiate between being compassionate and trying to understand why someone is doing the things that they're doing with being okay with the strategies that they're taking. And this is the part that I think can actually help us move this work forward. If I can understand what is motivating this person to do these actions, if I can connect to their full human experience, if I can hold compassion for the things that they're doing, then when I speak up to say, and you need to stop doing this. It's coming from a place that's not about judging or shaming them, but about saying, I understand why, what you're trying to accomplish, and this is not the way to do it. And let's work together to find a mm -hmm. different way to be so that you can thrive and I can thrive. Yeah, and you're really linking to the, the greater needs. And it's almost like you're bringing back in for people a sense of the way that their intention really links with a larger philosophy about the world becoming a, a, a better Absolutely. place. Because that's part of what the goal is for me of doing this work. It's not to say, hey, you know what? Black folks like me have been at the bottom of the totem pole, so we not need to be at the top. It's to say we all need to be at the top. It's not an either or. We need to change these structures so that everybody can thrive. And when I think about the role of compassion and self-compassion, I'm really clear that whenever I stay in judgment, whenever I'm looking at you and saying, you're evil, you're bad, you should be discarded, you should be canceled, it becomes really difficult to create that world where everyone can thrive. And not only is it difficult to do that, if that's what I practice, if I get really skilled at judging you every time you do something I don't like, 
guess what happens when I do something I don't like? That's the skill I've practiced, judgment. So I turn it towards myself and I blame and I judge myself. And I see this happening when movements fall apart or when people burn out. I didn't do enough. I'm a bad person. And so I want us to practice that skill of compassion so that we have it available to, to use on ourselves when we need it. And, and so that people remain fully resourced as they're doing this work and are able to work with effectiveness. And um, there's something about your work that so inspires me, Roxy, where you're, where you're kind of cleaving to a, 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 an essential request for very clear change. And this is one of the things that I think just so has inspired me about being able to be in community and in partnership with you. And so that brings me to this question about your book title, the first book, your, your book title, anti How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations. Does this mean you're prioritizing conversations above action? Yeah, absolutely not, right? Instead, <laughs> I think action is the goal of conversations, right? We need to be able to have these conversations so that we know how to move towards actions. If something is happening in my community that I don't like, and I want to be effective in transforming this, I need to understand what's happening here. How are people being impacted? Why are you taking these actions? And from that place of deep understanding, which we arrive at through conversation, I get a better sense of and what are the actions that will be effective in creating lasting change? Because again, it's not just about like making sure that the behavior stops, but I haven't addressed the underlying need that was driving the behavior. Because if I don't address that underlying need, a different behavior is going to pop up that might be just as harmful, just as toxic. We need the conversations so that you understand my needs and I understand yours and we can find strategies that work for all of us. Mm-hmm. It's so effective. And one of the questions that we ask our guests is about their relationship with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s concept of beloved community. Roxy, mm-hmm. what is beloved community and what has it meant to you? Ah, so my favorite analogy when I think about beloved community is that I think about family, right? And if, if you're like me, you've got family members that you absolutely love. And even though you love them dearly, they do things you cannot stand, right? Things that are painful, things that are hard. <laughs> I think this is true about almost all of us. But because they're family, I generally, and this is not always, I want to acknowledge that, not always, but I generally go that extra step to think about how can I let them know that what you're doing isn't working for me? How can I call them in and invite them to do something that's a little bit different, so when I think about my family members doing these things that I don't like, I let them know, I, I have a commitment. My commitment is to let you know when what you're doing isn't working for me and to help you find ways to show up differently, ways that are going to help you thrive and help our family thrive. And that's what beloved community means for me, that I'm seeing every single person as a member of my human family somebody who might be doing things that I don't like. And my goal is to help them learn how to be better, how to do better so that we can all thrive. Because I'm very aware that we are all on this planet and we need to be able to work together so that 
not just us, not just my group, not just me, but we can all thrive, we can all take the actions that we're going to need to make our whole global global community thrive. And that's the only way we'll, we'll kind of get through some of the challenges that we're facing right now. Oh, my goodness. It's so it's so painful and so beautiful and so inspiring and so important. And and working with you, Roxy, and coming more and more deeply into relationship with the concept of beloved community and with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s work in general has really given me some solid ground to stand on in mm-hmm. a time where I was struggling very deeply about our society and how it was and with hopelessness and despair. So I'm grateful, so grateful. Oh, and, thank you. Yeah. And now that all of you who are listening have heard our answers to these questions, mm-hmm. we invite you to join us as we explore these questions with the people who have shown us what is possible when we bring compassion and creativity to anti-racism. We get to see so many unique expressions of this fusion. And one of the things we're really hoping you take from the series is that whatever your path Right? Whether you're an educator, a parent, um, an artist, a writer, whatever your path, that the way that you show up in the world, the way that you bring compassion to yourself, to your life and the lives of others is a form of activism. It sets the steeds that are necessary for creating change. So join us to see how others have done this. <laughs>